Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, California homebuyers have gobbled up single-family homes in exurbs and suburbs, while renters who've lost work struggle to make their monthly payments. Though 2020's mini-exodus from cities saw rents fall, those drops did nothing to help millions of renters who lost income. Meantime, the movement away from San Francisco and Los Angeles to places like Sacramento, Fresno, and Riverside are making it hard for first-time homebuyers to enter the market. We look at how these trends are affecting California's housing affordability challenges and appetite for building denser urban housing. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. There's been no mass exodus from California driven by remote work, as some predicted. Rather, Californians moved around the state, from cities to suburbs and exurbs that were considered affordable, but now that's changing. The median home price in California has risen up to 20% in the past year to about $700,000, according to the California Association of Realtors. For more, we're joined first by Igor Popov, chief economist at Apartment List. Igor Popov, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. We've been hearing about skyrocketing demand for homes in places like Truckee and Tracy and Fresno. And can you remind us first what's been happening in California's market for single family homes this past year? Absolutely. Well, it's really been a tale of two Californias when it comes to real estate throughout the pandemic. The uh, large job producing cities, the San Francisco's, LA's, Oakland's, San Diego's, um, have seen uh, their rents fall dramatically across the board in the apartment market and the, the single family home market. And a lot of, of new cities are taking the spotlight. So we're seeing a lot of demand for single family homes uh, in places like Fresno, massive demand for apartments as well, who've seen a lot of reshuffling um, that's been really different from the 10 years of uh, urban geography that led into the pandemic. And what's driven this migration from cities? We know that remote work is one of them, but what else? Well, the, the, the basic of it is that cities are not the best place to be in a pandemic, largely just because a lot of the things that we love about cities were shut off, right? The the entertainment, the in-person collaboration, the gathering. So no karaoke bars, no uh, no indoor dining. 
that meant that a lot of the reason why people were in cities disappeared and people wanted more space. But I think that another thing happened, which was cities started to get cheaper, at least in the rental market. And so now we're actually seeing that, that trend really turn the corner where, you know, in our data, we're seeing a lot of, of new eyeballs on places like San Francisco and L.A. suggesting even they're going to be in for a really busy summer. So even though there has been an impact on rents uh, as this migration from cities to suburbs has occurred, it sounds like you're saying that people are already starting to come back, that, that ultimately this is not going to be a long-term problem for, say, San Francisco and Los Angeles. Right. The, another way to put it is the rents have fallen enough to lure in a whole new set of renters that, that maybe were priced out before, but now um, with rents lower and with optimism a bit higher, uh, cities are looking more attractive again. Now, by the way, though, the other markets I mentioned, the Fresnos and Sacramentos and Bakersfields of the world, are still very hot. <laughs> and so um, we uh, are, are probably in for a summer of, of pretty solid price growth uh, in real estate across the board in California. Interesting. So just in terms of rent growth specifically, so in places like Fresno, Riverside, Bakersfield, yes. for example, you're saying the rent growth there has been really going up. Absolutely. So we're talking Fresno up 12% year over year, places like Riverside, Salinas, Oxnard up 9%. These are our huge uh, annual rent growth numbers that traditionally are really reserved for uh, fracking towns, right? But we're seeing double-digit rent growth in much of the Central Valley, uh, which which has been um, certainly uh, driving growth in those cities and putting a lot of pressure on, on people that were there for the affordable housing to begin with. Hmm. And then going back to the housing side of this in those places and Fresno and so forth, why is it that there is so little inventory there <laughs> to meet demand? Yeah, <laughs> That, that's the key question, because inventory is really at, at near record lows across the country uh, for single family homes right now. I think there, there, there are a few things that perpetuate a bit of a cycle. Uh, there's been a lot of economic and general uncertainty throughout the pandemic, which has meant a lot of people have maybe delayed moves that they were trying to make. But every time someone chooses not to move, that means they do not vacate the, the home that they're currently in. Um, which means someone else does not have an opportunity to move into that home. And so as prices have been rising because of this low supply, uh, families and homeowners are looking at, at their option to move and saying, well, where would we move to? The place that I might have moved to is now a bit more out of reach than it was. So they're staying put. And that cycle perpetuates driving um, not much inventory, which in turn drives prices up again, because the 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 potential homeowners in the market are, are bidding up the price of the little inventory that's there. Well, let's dig into the impact of this overall picture that you have laid out for us. And I want to invite Matt Schwartz into the conversation. Matt Schwartz is president and CEO of California Housing Partnership, a private nonprofit organization that works to provide sustainable and affordable housing. Matt Schwartz, thanks so much for joining us. Really pleased to be here and glad you're focused on this topic. Also with us is Daryl Owens, policy and data analyst for California YIMBY, co-executive of the housing nonprofit East Bay for Everyone and commissioner on the Berkeley Housing Advisory Commission. Daryl Owens, thanks so much for joining us as well. Happy to be here. So, Matt Schwartz, I'll start with you. So one of the things that um, Igor was talking about was rents, for example, and we've been hearing that rents have fallen in cities, but who has benefited from that fall in rents and who is still being hurt and may even be hurt more as a result of what's happened this past year? 
think that's the exact right question to ask because, well, everything that uh, Mr. Popoff was just describing is completely factually accurate. When you dig in, the perception is that everyone has been benefiting from the drops in, in that have hit our headlines in rental markets. But when you dig in deeper, what you see is that the drops that have occurred have been focused in certain geographic areas, and they've really been only at the high end of the market. So statewide multifamily rents uh, did decline slightly in 2020, but when you look at the lower end of the market, they actually increased. Um, and that's the part of the market which I think deserves the most attention. That's where people are struggling the most. That's where people have been hurt the most by COVID, where people have lost the most income. Why did they actually increase at that lower and lowest end? Well, we have had this historic uh, shortage. Um, our statewide report that we just published last month shows that we need 1.2 million more homes, affordable to low-income households, if we're going to get our state back in balance in this part of the market. And where people are able to build, where the market builds, is at the high end, because they need those rents to afford the escalating construction costs uh, that uh, have hit the housing industry over the last couple of decades. The other aspect of this that I know you have looked at at your organization is the fact that low-wage workers, of course, so if this is, if friends have, have dropped a little bit at the highest end, say the luxury towers or so that we're familiar with here in the Bay Area or in dense cities like Los Angeles, it's been the the housing at the lower end that hasn't budged or, as you are saying, has gotten higher. Of course, low-wage workers also tend to overlap with people of color. Can you talk about how this has broken down with regard to renters um, in different communities of color. Absolutely. And it's something I think we're all taking a closer look at in the, in the past year is the disproportionate impacts. And let me start by just talking about a standard that we use in, in the housing industry to define whether housing is affordable and whether a house, household is at risk of becoming homeless. And while the general standard is that a household should not be paying more than 30% of their income to have that housing be affordable and have them enough, uh, enough resources left to pay for other basic needs, when households get to the point where they're paying more than 50% of their income for housing, that means there's really not enough left to pay for other essentials and they're one shock away from being displaced. And so we just, our latest report shows that 78% of the lowest income renters are paying, now paying more than half their income on high housing costs compared to only 6% of moderate income renter households. So there really are different impacts here that are going on. And the COVID has really uh, exacerbated this. So in particular, to get to your question, uh, the impact on black and brown renters uh, has been really disproportionate. So as of March of this year, 17% of Latinx renters, 15% of black renters, and 15% of Asian American renters are behind on rent compared to just 5% of white renters. And that's a huge disparity um, and one that we can't ignore. Daryl Owens, I'd like to bring you in as well. First, to get your thoughts in terms of who we should be talking about as 
Who has benefited the most, say, from the recent changes that we've seen in California's housing market and, and who, who's been hit hardest? So at this point, home ownership is completely out of the question for most lower middle and even slightly middle upper income residents in the Bay Area at this hmm. point. Um, that was accelerated by the pandemic, which unleashed a flood of people trying to buy homes in areas that were already gentrifying but now have more or less been completely out of range. There was a recent article in the San Francisco Chronicle that talked about how the median sale price for a house in Berkeley is now $1.5 million and is currently headed to the trajectory of 3 million um, within a couple of years. So ultimately everyone's kind of lost on that front. They're gonna need some strong intervention to stop that. When we talk about renters, you know, the data shows that for uh, middle income and upper middle income households, the rents have dropped considerably but for lower income residents, it hasn't. And there's probably a lot of attempts to start evictions by landlords as to why rents have maybe marginally pushed upwards. Um, There's also been a huge eviction crisis that is underway. Because of the moratorium, landlords can't evict anybody right now, but when that moratorium lifts, you're gonna see a lot of attempts to evict tenants that are disproportionately gonna be lower income. And it, it, it will probably have the impacts of like the subprime mortgage crisis in terms of the amount of homelessness we see increase if nothing is done to stop it. And that moratorium is set to, to end around June 30th, correct, of this year? I believe so, provided that it's not extended. We're talking about changes to California's housing market, housing situation, and we want to hear from you, our listeners. What questions or comments do you have, reactions to what you're hearing? Have you moved in the past year? What was behind your decision? What are your concerns about your housing situation? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at the impact of recent changes in California's housing and rental markets and what they mean for the state's longtime housing affordability issues. We're talking with Igor Popov, chief economist at Apartment List, Matt Schwartz, president and CEO of California Housing Partnership, and Daryl Owens, policy and data analyst for California Yimby, co-executive of the housing nonprofit East Bay for Everyone and commissioner on the Berkeley Housing Advisory Commission. You, our listeners, are also with us, and you can join the conversation by calling 866 866- 6-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also email us, forum at kqed.org, or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. 
Igor Popov, I was struck by one thing that Matt Schwartz said before the break, which was about just the supply side and how, how builders are building at the higher end. Can you talk about what happened on the supply side of things over the course of the pandemic? Uh, absolutely. The Certainly the um, rate at which uh, construction was starting to pick up steam was, um, you know, slowed. But at the same time, the housing permitting hasn't completely fallen off a cliff. So it's more about the trajectory that it's been on. Um, uh, nationally, multifamily uh, construction has really rebounded since the Great Recession. Um, in places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, though, we are still so uh, supply constrained that we're not on anywhere uh, uh, near the path to be building on on uh, what Matt was talking about in terms of a balanced market. So, um, you know, the trajectory has remained reasonably stable, but the question of whether or not that's the right trajectory for, for where we want to be with affordability um, is, a, is a massive question mark, of course. Daryl Owens, before the pandemic, a lot of the discussion was on trying to build denser housing in cities, along transit lines. First, I mean, I assume you still think that's the way to go make that argument if you would, but also tell us what happened, what's happening to that focus right now. So the big myth that permeated throughout the pandemic was that density was the cause of the coronavirus spread. We know this not to be true because the biggest outbreak was really in Los Angeles, which is like a suburban metropolis. Uh, the correlation, if not the causation, very clearly appears to be household crowding, not density, which are two separate things. So density is just the amount of housing, how close housing is to one another. And household crowding is how many people live in one home. When you have high unaffordability and you have a huge housing shortage, lots of people are cramming in one home that a home's not really built for. California ranks, I believe, 50th out of 50th and um, crowded renters in the entire nation. So what happened was, is when someone got coronavirus, you basically spread it around to the entire household. These are things that density actually helps solve. And so, and, and the way it does that is because if people have an extra room or if you live in a non-traditional nuclear family, such as a multi-generational family, you have an extra house. I know many families that have their, their nuclear family living in one home and then they have their extended families, the uncles, the aunts living in the duplex right beside it. This is very common in Oakland. Um, those are policies that can help reduce household crowding by adding housing to the inventory. But unfortunately, a lot of the uninformed, non-scientific narrative put the blame on density. So you saw this rush for suburban sprawl. Suburban sprawl is not only completely unsustainable in terms of our environmental goals, that's where most of the carbon emissions are coming from, suburban oversized houses and people driving when they can't live by low um, carbon, if not zero emissions, public transportation. But also it, it feeds into this myth that somehow density was the cause of the coronavirus spread. So you have more people living in overcrowded conditions in these big homes and they're gonna be feeling pandemic spread too. It's ultimately just a very destructive thing. Hmm. Matt Schwartz, are you noticing the same thing that it, it seems like some of the momentum maybe, especially even on the state level potentially, for developing dense housing in urban areas is starting to wane? Well, I'm not seeing it necessarily wane. I think there are lots of bills in the legislature that would um, enable greater density. What I'm seeing, though, is a lack of a comprehensive long-term plan that would 
enable us to do what's needed to address the situation Daryl was just describing, which is to transform the way we uh, plan for housing and we entitle, improve, approve housing, which is an incredibly complicated and risky process right now. And it's part of what's driving up costs and uh, frankly, making it very difficult for lower income people of color to find any place to live in our more exclusionary neighborhoods. Let me go to caller Javier in San Francisco. Hi, Javier. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm basically what they call a boondocker, and I live here in San Francisco in a camper. And uh, what I've noticed during the pandemic is there's just been a massive increase of people boondocking, this type of lifestyle. I'm lucky that I have a nice camper and I have some solar power. But the biggest challenge is is with the increasing number of, of people boondocking in the city, it's getting a little bit more dangerous to park. It's difficult to find parking. I'm also really surprised that the city isn't doing anything. Areas like Candlestick Park, which is pretty much a big parking lot, seems to be deliberately fenced in when it could essentially be a, a big, safe parking lot for people living this lifestyle right now. That's is, this, is this a lifestyle that you, you said living this lifestyle, is this one that was driven by the pandemic? Did something happen to make you change your housing situation? Yeah, actually, oh, I'm a, a contractor, and I, I uh, was pushed out by a, a pretty bad landlord. And uh, the only res uh, the solution was was this, and this was prior to the pandemic. So I've actually seen the the culture of boondocking. People were forced out onto the streets because of uh, a terrible living situation, and then the pandemic increased, and there's a lot more of us now. And uh, it's just uh, with if if the the moratorium on evictions ends in June you're going to just see a massive increase of people living, living in their vehicles. And uh, I'm just more hmm. concerned about sanitation and other issues like that. Have you think don't have toilets. Yeah, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Daryl Owens, um, can you respond to what Javier is saying? And, and, and do you think his prediction is right? Last year, East Bay for Everyone, an organization which I work with, um, vigorously opposed attempts to evict RVs from Berkeley. And we oppose it all over the East Bay. The truth is, is that when you have a housing shortage this substantial, you're going to have a lot more people sleeping in their cars. A lot of our homeless population are people sleeping in their cars and are people sleeping in RVs. If you're talking about this from a sustainability point of view, I'd much rather see parking spaces used for housing, meaning uh, campers and RVs, than used for personal vehicle transport, which is our largest source of emissions in the state of California. So, I mean, ultimately, it's not like it's a bad thing, but the problem is, is that eventually you're going to run out of space for mobile homes. So it, it, it's complicated regarding how to solve the problem. I'm in favor of decriminalization of letting people sleep in their cars and on, and on and RVs. But if we don't get serious about the housing shortage soon, this is going to become the norm because at this point, a car is a lot more affordable than a house is. Let me go to caller Don in Oakland next. Hi, Don. Join us. Yes, I have a concern that uh, there are investors, investment companies that are buying up uh, rental stock uh, in the Bay Area. I know that they've it's been very profitable in the rest of the country, uh, both investors in this country and then overseas, and they have no stake in anything except evicting people. That's how they make their uh their profits. Is that a, a, an issue in the Bay Area or are the prices so high for buying up housing stock that they no longer are preying on this area? 
Hmm, interesting. Don, Igor Popov, do you want to respond to Don's question? Is that something you're concerned about as well? Yeah, I think this has been a, a big trend really over the last 10 years is the, the rise in the single family home rental market, which is a very concentrated uh, rental market. It, it tends to be more common in, um, in places where the housing prices are not so high. Our housing prices in the Bay Area have so much appreciation baked in um, that uh, uh, I think it is hard to um, actually make a make a monthly profit off of where you know the the prices are where Daryl mentioned 1.5 million in Berkeley it's hard to recoup that through single-family rentals but um, it, it's it is going to be a continued trend um, I think that uh, uh, th there's there's still a lot of research to be done on what you know is the difference between having a landlord that you know and having a landlord um, that is a corporation in the single family home market. Um, but I, I, I think that it's certainly happening in the Bay Area, but not quite as much as in other parts of California. Again, we're talking with Igor Popov, Chief Economist at Apartmentless, Matt Schwartz, President and CEO of California Housing Partnership, Daryl Owens, Policy and Data Analyst for California EMB. And you, our listeners, are telling us your questions, your comments for our guests about what's happening in California's housing market, the recent changes, the questions around affordability. Also, have you moved in the past year and what was behind your decision? What concerns do you have potentially about your housing situation? Maybe you've noticed changes in your neighborhood and want to tell us about that. You can also let us know if there are housing-related proposals that you would support. 866-733-6786, the number. Email address forum at kqed.org. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Angela writes, what are the demographics of the flight away from the cities? Middle class, white, or other was the flight? Diverse. Uh, Igor Popov, I'll go back to you on that quickly. Do you know? So we don't see those kind of demographics in in our data per se, but I think that it largely happened at um, at, at the higher end of the market. That's where we've really seen um, the, the the luxury end of the market was the one that was you know the most you know, hollowed out during the pandemic. And um, the I think I think that the remote work remote work's effect on cities and the distribution of jobs in, in the U.S. is still in its early stages. So I think that, you know, you look at the population of, of San Francisco and you ask who can, who's in a job that can be done remotely, half of uh, San Francisco jobs can be done remotely. And those, that half um, has a median income that is twice as high as the half that cannot, uh, that is in a job that cannot be done remotely. So um, that is, is, is a trend that is just starting to play out. And those people that are going to be potentially given the flexibility of working remotely will have a lot of, of income to throw around in the rental market. Well, let me go to caller Adrian in Walnut Creek. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Adrian. Are you there? And we'll see if we can. Oh. Hi, Adrian, I'm is here. that you? Can no, you go right me? ahead. I can hear you now. Okay. Um, my husband and I make about 170000 a year, considered middle class, lower, lower middle class income. We've lived in Walnut Creek 11 years, uh, and we cannot find any affordable housing. And I'm wondering, will there ever be a time where in Northern California, people like us can afford to buy a house without going into major debt? Adrian, thanks. I mean, that's a central question, right? Matt Schwartz, can you talk a little bit about your organization's efforts around affordable housing? I certainly can. Uh, we tend to focus more on the um, needs for 
lower-income renters rather than homeownership, although we recognize that homeownership is uh, something that's important for everybody to have an opportunity to, um, to access. And what we did look at was patterns of displacement, getting back to the uh, conversation we were just having, both from the single-family housing that um, I think uh, Don in Oakland was talking about, and as well as multifamily housing. And we found that, you know, one of the things that's been happening even pre-pandemic was essentially a resegregation of the Bay Area where low-income households, particularly of color, are being pushed out of the inner Bay Area um, into uh, outer areas and even 30% of them uh, out of the Bay Area altogether. And um, most of those families are ending up in higher poverty er poverty areas with greater concentrations of only one racial ethnic group. And those areas have fewer resources. So whether it's rental opportunities or homeownership opportunities, I think we need to make sure that people don't have to leave um, a job rich, transit rich uh, areas of the state just to have those opportunities. Well, sort of related, Mike Rice, I have been th three years in Sonoma County for three years trying to get approval on a minor subdivision based on billing three to four months can go by with no activity. I'm doing everything by the book, no variances. NIMBY is alive and well in Sonoma County. Daryl Owens, can you talk a little bit about efforts to get things like minor subdivisions or, or just more multifamily homes in cities and whether or not that's showing some promise. Yeah. You know, there was a project in South Berkeley. It was a low income housing project. And thanks to Senate bill 35, since Berkeley had satisfied its affordable housing goals, um, the project got ministerial approval, which meant that it didn't have to go through the standard permitting process. The low-income developers openly admitted without that uh, ministerial approval, it would have taken them up to two years to secure financing and get the permits for this housing project. Instead, they got it in 90 days for 100% low-income residents. We have to get the cost of construction down. Uh, today, there's a parking bill being introduced to waive parking requirements for housing uh, complexes that are near public transportation. But also, we have to deal with the fact that it's very hard for average homeowners and small contractors to build housing if anyone can sue them and block them from years on end. California had a housing shortage dating back to the 1970s. This problem isn't new. It's just gotten worse as it hasn't been addressed. So ultimately, we have to question whether it's right for people to sue and block other people from having homes because they feel their views are affected or they want a parking space. I mean, ultimately, these are the tough questions we're going to have to ask. Let me go to caller Buck in San Francisco. Hi, Buck. Hi, Buck. Are you there? Hang on. Uh, yes, ma'am. What's on your mind? Um, you know, I'm very critical of KQED for even having a conversation like this without having a rent control advocate on your panel. Um, God bless your, your experts, but they're constrained by ideological blinders. Two-thirds of San Francisco is rental housing. How can we talk about affordability without talking about rent control? Oh, wait, it's going to turn San Francisco into the South Bronx. So you really have to get over this KQED and so do your commentators. Talk about rent control and how it's the only solution to this problem. 
I don't know if that's actually accurate. I mean, is there anybody here who would challenge Buck's assumption about your views? Matt, for example? We just published a 10-year Marshall Plan to end homelessness and uh, uh, solve the state's housing crisis. And we do have, uh, among the 51 state legislative proposals in this Roadmap Home 2030, there are proposals that would enable uh, local jurisdictions to strengthen rent control as Buck notes, which can be a critical tool in some communities, but it is not a panacea. We have to also increase the supply. If we're just tightening the prices on existing supply, we are never gonna to get to ending homelessness and producing the 1.2 million more homes we need to. So we've gotta talk about land use issues as well. Matt Schwartz is president and CEO of California Housing Partnership. Daryl Owens is policy and data analyst for California Yimby and co-executive of the housing nonprofit East Bay for Everyone and commissioner on the Berkeley Housing Advisory Commission. Igor Popoff is chief economist at Apartment List. And we're talking about California's housing market, housing shortage, the impact of recent changes and movement across the state. With you, our listeners, 866-733-6786 is the number to call if you want to join the conversation. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook account. KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're spending the hour talking about California's housing market and the recent changes in California related to housing. We're joined by Daryl Owens, policy and data analyst for California Yimby, Matt Schwartz, president and CEO of California Housing Partnership, and Igor Popoff, chief economist for Apartment List. And we want to hear from you, our listeners, about what your housing situation has been. Have you moved in the past year? What was behind that decision? Are you concerned about your housing situation? What changes have you noticed in your own neighborhoods. Give us a call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And let me go now to Jared in San Francisco. Hi, Jared. Hi. um, I'm calling just because I have some experience with moving from outside of California to California. And um, when I moved here, uh, 
I was dealing, I had two different experiences with realtors that were unwilling to work with me. Uh, I had a job, I was making about, you know, $200,000 a year. One told me that I should find someone, get married, that's also making $200,000 a year. Um, and another would artificially raise my offer on houses and, and saying that she wasn't willing to put my offer in on houses unless I raised them. And, um, you know, the, the houses that I was offering on, I was giving the same for a very like similar house that just sold for the same price. So I wasn't giving a, a, a really low offer. It's just I'll take Matt off the air. Yeah, Jared, thanks for sharing that experience. Igor, pop up with everything that's happening in single family housing. I imagine that people like Jared, that experience might might be potentially more common. I mean, it sounds like real estate for real estate agents, this is great time for them, right? They're really winning in all of this. Well, uh, if you can find the homes to sell, it's, it's a <laughs> that's good true. Business, there isn't much inventory. There, yes, there isn't much inventory. It's just the the story in the forced sale market is that there aren't that many homes for sale, right. and I think that's really what drives this fierce competition. Where you know it feels like to buy a home, you you need to basically. Uh, you know, it feels like an an, an application. Then, then you're writing a letter, and and you're putting in a lot of money over asking. And uh, it is uh, it is not this way in most of the country. But um, at the same time, a lot of the uh, other markets, like Austin, Atlanta, Nashville, are are also starting to feel this 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 pain that um, you know I think many of the California markets have been feeling for you know, frankly the last ten years. We were talking about some of the pressures on housing. One of the things also, I, I don't know if we brought this up sooner, but that millennials are reaching that age, Igor Popov too, where I guess they would be at that home buying age now. Is that putting added pressure on demand? It It, it is. Um, it's certainly, people have described it as the kind of the mouse going through the snake, so to speak, where the millennials have been this big generation that uh, many Analysts have been waiting to reach this this peak home buying age. Now millennials are there, and they're meeting a very difficult time in the economy and a very difficult housing market. So, I think that uh, I think that they've somewhat bifurcated. There, there was a group of um, millennials that I think made it through, if they could make it through the pandemic with their employment intact, um, and maybe they were planning to settle down in a few years. Uh, they sped that up. I think that was a pretty small group. We've been serving mm -hmm. millennial renters for several years at Apartment List, and we've seen essentially the, a record number this year, 18%, say that they expect to rent forever, um, not just through the pandemic, but forever. Uh, that's the highest we've seen it since we started that survey. Um, and I think it's a, a, a testament to, to the market that they're facing, as, um, uh, as, as, as we just heard from the caller. Let me go to caller Praveen in San Jose. Hi, Praveen. Hi, morning. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I, I, you know, I've heard this conversation multiple times, and I really think this is a transportation problem within the Bay than, than a housing problem. You know, if I wanted to buy a house in Dublin, it's going to take me an hour to commute. Nobody wants that, right? I mean, if, if we had transportation, we could be, you know, looking at homes in Los Banos or Mountain House or and, and pocket all the money that I, you know, make by selling my house in San Jose, but I can't do that because the travel is, is brutal. Thank you. Praveen, thanks. 
He's raising an interesting point, um, Daryl Owens, in the sense that a lot of people are are moving and able to move further out because they won't necessarily have to commute back in. But I'm also wondering, how certain is that? I mean, we have the breakdown of jobs that can go remote, um, broken down by race in the Bay Area. Half of jobs that white people have can go remote. Same with Asian Americans. Uh, when you get to blacks and Latinos, it goes a lot closer to about 30 percent. So a lot of service workers, retail workers, lower income workers and even middle income workers, particularly public sector workers, can't afford to go remote. So it is true that we do need to expand transportation. I'm of the opinion that transportation needs to be in place first before we raise another greenfield out in Tracy or, or uh, Fairfield to build another subdivision. But ultimately the real problem is we can expand housing in the urban core. We need to stop trying to demolish more of our environment to build more housing and then be frustrated that we have to build highways and freeways because we don't have the transit in order. We can do housing in the urban core. You just have to do it smart. You have to make the construction costs cheaper. And that's it. Other than that, I mean, we're, we are kind of stuck. We're going to get more freeways and more highways and more sprawl. And, you know, we're dealing with wildfire season every year now. It, that's enabled by that suburban sprawl we constantly do. I guess, Igor Popov, I'm wondering, as an economist, do you think that the remote work arrangements that people are seeing in the pandemic and that people are banking their housing choices on, for example, um, will not change once the world starts to open up even more than it already has begun to? Uh, and if not, the concern is whether or not you'll actually have to have people starting to commute a few days a week from their very far away places from their central workplace. Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the choice that Praveen, I think, does not want to make, which is to live very far away um, and then spend hour, hour and a half commuting, is actually becoming a more and more common choice. I mean, the, the, the rise of super commuters, people that are commuting an, an hour and a half each way, was a major trend before the pandemic. And I think in the absence of building in the urban core, as Daryl pointed out, that's going to continue to happen. More people are going to look at that trade off and say, I am actually okay doing that. I actually think that a lot of the the, the employer and, and sorry, the employee demand uh, throughout the pandemic has been hedging its bets. And so there's a lot of talk of, you know, some of these bigger technology financial companies going to a hybrid model where you maybe only have to go into the office two days a week. That in the absence of new housing is going to push people further out, right? Towards Sacramento, if, if you only want to commute two days a week, you might tolerate all else equal a longer commute and, and living further away. Um, and I think as Daryl pointed out, that has um, uh, major environmental implications uh, in addition to these conversations about housing and people's livelihoods. Yes. A couple of comments here on sort of neighborhood character. Megan writes, cash buyers from the South Bay have flooded into Sonoma County. Locals who've been trying to save up to buy a home or upsize are completely out of luck. I'm really concerned about Silicon Valley tech culture changing our sleepy wine country vibe. Michael writes, I grew up in San Francisco, but was priced out of that housing market in the early 1980s. I lived in the East Bay my entire working life, but my wife and I are about to retire and we will have to sell out sell our home in Oakland and move out of state because we will not be able to afford the property taxes on our retirement income. This area completely lacks any commitment to those who are native to the area and is only concerned with meeting the needs, desires of high income tech workers who migrate in. Daryl Owens, can I get your reaction to those last couple of comments? 
When you're talking about property taxes, the reason why the property taxes are so high is because Proposition 13 has reduced the amount of revenue that cities can collect. So they essentially have to raise the property taxes, but the only people really paying for it are new home buyers um, and, and, and people who are newcomers. So if you want to have lower property taxes, if your liabilities go up in terms of the pensions you have for public workers, which are all good things, then you have to have more people paying the property taxes evenly. We also need to repeal Proposition 13 benefits, not for homeowners who need it, long-timers who need it, but we need to repeal it for big corporations. We had a chance to do that with Proposition 15 in 2020. Sadly, it didn't pan out. Well, Justin writes, if I can't afford to live somewhere, I don't live there. Why is this concept overlooked when talking about affordable housing? I can't afford to live in Atherton. Is Atherton under obligation to provide me affordable housing? Yes. Your reaction, <laughs> Dar Daryl, your reaction to that sounds like that you were jumping in there. Yes. Um, those West Bay suburbs uh, the, on the peninsula that are huge job creators, they are responsible for much of the housing crisis. I mean, you're talking about San Mateo County approved 18 new jobs for every one new home in the last 10 years. Um, San Francisco was a pretty huge contributor too. eight new jobs for every one new home. So they're creating all this demand in San Francisco and the peninsula, particularly Palo Alto, Mountain View, Menlo Park, and they're not building the housing. So they benefit from getting all the sales tax revenue, but they don't have the people who actually work in their city able to live there because they haven't built the housing inventory. And it's an exclusionary effect. Atherton is a wealthy suburb because it prohibits a lot of the nannies and the cooks and the service workers who work there from living there. It's exclusionary, it's segregationist, and it should be stopped. Matt, do you have a reaction to what Justin wrote there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, state law is really clear. Housing Accountability Act, is very clear that every community has responsibility, not just to create jobs, but to provide housing for the people who live and work in that community. If we don't do that, we're seeing the consequences already where places like the Bay Area are starting to resegregate because the Athertons of the world haven't done their job producing the housing that that would match the the jobs they're they're producing. There are things that we can and should do that are part of our roadmap home 2030 proposal. There's a bill pending right now that would create a statewide housing appeals board that would end the um, the the many years it takes to get housing uh, approved that matches the existing general plan of that community. Typically, it's apartments that are denied that in their ability to move forward and often end up in litigation. Let's create what Massachusetts has done, a statewide appeals board where developers who are battling not in my backyard opponents, people who are scared of change or don't want their uh, neighborhoods to change at all from the way they bought them, that they have a place to go when local elected officials are not willing to stand up. A second uh, type of proposal that has been under discussion and needs to be put back on the legislative table is to end the exclusionary racially discriminatory zoning in these resource rich neighborhoods like Atherton by allowing increases to building height and density for housing developments where at least 20% of the homes are affordable to low income households. We, we've got to end the ability of certain communities to screen out apartments and to screen out lower income people, generally people of color. 
There's been some talk of trying to do that, those zoning changes in Sacramento, for example, Matt Schwartz. Is that, is that going somewhere in a, in a pretty substantive way? Well, the um, state Senate has a package of bills. Uh, the state assembly, um, uh, particularly Assemblymember David Chu, is working on a number of bills that would help around the margins, mostly for accessory dwelling units, uh, smaller uh, developments. But what's missing is an overall plan, a long-term plan with clear long-term goals on what the state needs to do to dramatically increase the supply. And that's what California's Roadmap Home 2030 lays out. And I think, you know, what's really frustrating, having been in this field of trying to increase the affordable housing supply for almost 30 plus years now, is that each year we treat the housing crisis as a new problem where we have to come up with new ideas rather than setting clear long-term goals and then developing a phased approach. And we need that from our state leaders now. Matt Schwartz is president and CEO of California Housing Partnership. Igor Popov is chief economist at Apartment List. Daryl Owens is policy and data analyst for California Yimby, co-executive of the housing nonprofit East Bay for Everyone, commissioner on the Berkeley Housing Advisory Commission. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Spencer in San Francisco. Hi, Spencer. Join us. Hi, my name is Spencer Keaton Cunningham. I just had a comment on, uh, I guess he was saying that San Francisco Bay Area is becoming more uh, resegregated, but I feel like it's always been segregated if you look at the makeup of the city and how indigenous people have been historically removed from San Francisco. Or if you take a look at Hunter's Point, for example, or other areas of the city where, um, you know, me as an artist, uh, a lot of my friends have, you know, been kicked out of the city because they couldn't afford it. I moved to SF in 2004 when it was a little bit more affordable and lived in the same unit for almost uh, 12 years, got pushed out by a landlord, came back recently, you know, and the city is, is kind of unrecognizable to me. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, just that was just a little comment I had. Oh, Spencer, thanks, thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for the comment. Jonathan writes, I'm an East Bay real estate agent and work with a lot of buyers. It's not fun right now. And I really feel for buyers right now. Currently, condos are the best option and or driving far east or north. Curtis writes, California is the victim of its own success. Our economic successes coupled with our environmental protections have made our job centers some of the most desirable places to live in the world. Moving forward, the solution is a combination of increased housing density, slightly expanding the urban footprint, and improving public and private transportation. These changes won't solve the problem, but will help ease the suffering. Igor Popov, as an economist, as you've been watching these trends play out over the past year related to the pandemic, can you give me a sense of where you think things are going? I know it's very difficult, but at the same time, because because so much that has happened has been unprecedented to some extent. But but just curious what where you where you think things are headed for the state and if you're optimistic or not. Yes, um, I, I think that you know, Daryl had alluded earlier to the the myth that density was a, a cause for spread of the pandemic, and that's been debunked. I think the the new myth that's being debunked is that the preference for density has gone away. Right, so we see in our apartment list search data there is um, rapid growth now in in searches that are going to. Uh, more dense places than than where the searchers where the renters currently located, um, 
I, I think that uh, there's going to be a strong demand for urban amenities, all of the things that and the, the communication, the collaboration that people have been really missing throughout the course of the pandemic. I think that's also going to come right at a time when uh, the light at the end of the tunnel from a public health standpoint is drawing nearer. So I think that we are going to see uh, basically San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, LA, San Diego rents bounce back quickly. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of the, uh, the housing affordability issues are going to become, you know, front and center once again in the urban areas as the pandemic fades. But it's also, it's not a zero sum game. I think it can be true that those cities bounce back and um, all of the, the inland regions that have seen a real boom during the pandemic are going to continue to grow as they were growing before the pandemic. Um, and so I think there will be more areas that are feeling the, the pressure from the housing crunch. Uh, but I, I, I do think um, we're already starting to see uh, this, this urban comeback kind of go from, from theory to reality really quickly this spring. Hmm. Daryl Owens, a final thought from you in terms of where we really need to be focusing our energy at this point. Right now, the immediate crisis is the eviction crisis. You have millions of renters all over the country who are about to be evicted if their moratoriums go. So we have to address that as the immediate issue. But the long-term housing shortage has been around for well over 40 years. The Black population in Oakland started to shrink in the 1990s. In San Francisco, the Black population started to shrink in the 1970s. This is a long-standing problem. Every city on earth that is affordable and has essentially eliminated homelessness, has done it by building lots of housing because population growth exists. Daryl Owens, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Matt Schwartz, Igor Popov, thanks all of you for joining us. Thanks to Blanca Torres for producing this segment. And thanks to our listeners for listening. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.